to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, every week when I start planning my show, I say to myself, this week, I won't talk about politics or Congress or the mess that our politicians are making in Washington or the challenges that are growing all around the country. But every week there's a new scandal or at least a new story and sometimes just an old story that's getting worse. And I really have to talk about it because for heaven's sakes, this is a news magazine and it's a very important story. What's happening in Congress today is appalling. And we need to pay attention to it because the election, the one that's coming up in November 2020, that election is probably going to be the most important election in our lifetime. It will determine the path that America takes for generations. And it will make the difference between America continuing to be the light of democracy for the world or a socialist nation that is spiraling down to self-destruction and oblivion. So listen up and let's take a look at the major stories coming out of Washington this week. There's an investigation going on in Congress. The Democrats call it an impeachment investigation but they refuse to take a vote on it, so they're doing it ad hoc and trying to convince the world that what they're doing is okay. It isn't. Michael McCall, who is a Republican congressman from Texas and the ranking member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, said at the beginning of the week, quote, it is being done in a classified briefing room behind closed doors when it should be in front of the American people so that all can see in a very transparent way the testimony of these witnesses, unquote. But Congressman Adam Schiff, who is the chairman of the Congressional Intelligence Committee, is running this impeachment investigation in secret, demanding by subpoena that the people he wants to investigate must come before his secret committee. This is the kind of thing that is unknown. It's foreign to American process. This is what they used to do in the Soviet Union, the KGB. They would hold these investigations and trials in secret, and nobody would ever know what went on there except the people who were in that room. But Adam Schiff wants to run his secret investigation in a very un-American way, and the people who agree to honor the subpoena and actually come to the hearings may be in for a very hard time. But we don't know because it's not, these are not open hearings. Now, one of the problems with these secret hearings is that they're dealing with sometimes classified information but there's nobody present in the hearings who can judge whether it is okay to reveal this classified information. There's nobody from the State Department, for example. There's nobody from the Justice Department. 
There's only the witness and the committee members and Adam Schiff, who is running the show. We don't do business like that in the United States. And I believe Adam Schiff is guilty of abuse of power, and it may come to bite him. Now, Adam Schiff, over the last several years, Adam Schiff has demonstrated that he is willing to lie to the American people in order to achieve his purpose, whatever that may be. He lied to the American people when he told us during the Mueller hearings that he had irrefutable evidence that President Trump had committed crimes. In the end, the Mueller investigation found that the president hadn't committed any crimes. But even after that report was released, Adam Schiff said he had proof that crimes had been committed, although he never revealed what they were. The second lie that he told to the American people related to the telephone conversation that the president had with Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky. President Trump called President Zelensky to congratulate him, to wish him good luck, and then they took a few minutes to discuss some of the issues that concerned them both, including the issue of corruption. Both President Trump and President Zelensky ran on anti-corruption platforms. And that was one of the things they discussed. And in that discussion, the name of Hunter Biden came up because he had been a key figure in the investigation into the corruption of a Ukrainian company called Burisma. Hunter Biden sat on the board of that company, for which he received an astronomical salary, even though he seemed to have no background or special knowledge about the business that Burisma was in. Now, there is nothing wrong with two state leaders discussing issues that concern them both, in this case, the issue of corruption, and that's what they did. But Adam Schiff made this a central issue in his impeachment campaign. So the lie that he told to the American people, there, there were actually two lies. The first was when he heard about this conversation, he made up what he thought the conversation might have sounded like, what President Trump might have said. But he read this version of the conversation into the congressional record in his position as chairman of the Intelligence Committee, and he read it as fact, as if this was the transcript of the conversation. It wasn't. He read this infamous presentation, which honestly I think Adam Schiff is going to have a hard time living down, because I suspect that he did not expect that President Trump would release the actual transcript of this conversation to the public. But he did, and he made Adam Schiff look like a fool. And Schiff had to walk back what he said and say it was really only satire. But it wasn't. It was a lie from beginning to end, made up out of whole cloth for the purpose of making President Trump look bad. In fact, making President Trump look guilty.
And by the way, anyone can now read the actual transcript online, as well as the made-up version read by Adam Schiff. Now, you can read this, the real transcript, as I said, online. In the real conversation, unlike in Adam Schiff's version, President Trump did not threaten or in any way misuse his presidential powers. He didn't say what Adam Schiff said he said. This is what Adam Schiff read. Quote, this is supposed to be Trump. Quote, I'm going to say this only seven times, so you better listen good. I want you to make up political dirt on my opponent. Understand? Lots of it. Unquote. Well, Trump never said that, of course, and, and that was the second lie that Adam Schiff told. The third lie was when he said that he and his staff had never spoken to the whistleblower before the information about the whistleblower was revealed to the public. Later on, it turned out that he and his staff had met with the whistleblower, and that was just a bald-faced lie. Now, this sounds terrible, and it is, but it's something that the Democrats have been doing for a very long time. Do you remember the terrorist attack on 9-11-2012 on our facility in Benghazi when our ambassador and three of our brave men in uniform were murdered? And do you remember what the administration said afterwards in an attempt to explain it? Do you remember the lie? They blamed it on a video that had been made by some hapless videographer in California. They didn't blame it on their lack of security or their unwillingness to support the security efforts of their people in Benghazi. And they didn't explain in any way why they failed to come and support them and protect them when they were under attack. That was a lie that they told. They didn't want the American people to know how deeply involved they were in that attack and how they could have prevented it and refused to. They refused to take responsibility, and their refusal to do that cost the lives of four good men. And that, that deception went right up to the White House. It went up to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. It went up to UN Ambassador Susan Rice, who, by the way, went on all the Sunday talk shows to reiterate that lie. And finally, it went up to President Barack Obama. All of them were involved in this deception. And by the way, the parents of the fallen were never given the right story and never given an apology by any member of the Obama administration. It was a disgrace. And it's been going on ever since, the lying to the American people. So when Adam Schiff makes up these lies and presents them to the American people as fact, he's acting in a long and ignoble tradition of the Democrat Party. And when he has these closed-door secret investigations, and nobody knows what questions were asked or what the answers were or what the outcome was. This is something that's very dangerous for America. Last week, Congressman Andy Biggs, Republican from Arizona, 
sponsored a motion to condemn and censure Schiff for unethical deceptive conduct. In his resolution, Biggs refers to how Schiff deliberately falsified evidence in order to smear President Trump and to damage him. The motion also includes how Schiff read false information as fact once before when he read fake accusations from the now-debunked Steele dossier that was all about Russian collusion on the part of Trump and was absolutely, totally fraudulent and fake. The bill came to a vote on Monday night as planned, and not surprisingly, it failed, with a straight party-line vote of 218 Democrats voting to table the resolution, that means to put it aside and not deal with it, and 185 Republicans voting against. Other Republicans have also complained about Schiff and his handling of the impeachment inquiry. Among them was Congressman Matt Goetz, a Republican from Florida, who was a member of the House Judiciary Committee, but was actually asked to leave a hearing by Schiff because he was not a committee member. And then Congressman Jim Jordan, who was a Republican from Ohio, slammed Schiff for leaking cherry-picked information from the closed-door hearings and leaking them to the press. Now understand, he's closed the hearings to fellow Republicans. Congressman Matt Goetz was asked to leave the hearing because he wasn't a committee member, but Adam Schiff leaks details of the investigation to the press. It's shocking and shameful. Now, Nancy Pelosi had the opportunity to make some of this right last week. She was once again asked to formalize this process by having a vote of all Congress. This has always been done. In each of the three impeachment investigations that have occurred in our nation's history, it was done for Andrew Johnson, it was done for uh, Richard Nixon, and it was done for Bill Clinton. But Nancy Pelosi says, and I quote, there is no requirement that we have a vote, and so at this time we will not have a vote. I don't know what the resistance is to doing this according to accepted process, but she has made it quite clear that whatever the process was, it has been discarded or ignored or rejected, and it's not going to happen, at least not now. My point is that we are now in very, very dangerous waters because the rules of conduct in Washington are no longer being followed. The Constitution is being ignored. We are no longer innocent until proven guilty. We no longer have the right to face our accusers. And kangaroo court is in session. This is something that needs to be brought to an abrupt halt and turned around. It is the American people and the American people alone who can make that happen. I'm having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that the fabric of our national culture is fraying and that the things that we used to hold dear and sacred, the laws 
that used to guide us are no longer being taken seriously by the people we have elected to lead us. And what does that mean for the future of this country? We now have Democrat candidates who are telling us that our democracy is wrong, that it's outdated or that it was never right. And they want us to move in the direction of socialism in ways that are totally un-American, that are unconstitutional, where the government will control our lives, not the people who will control the government. And that is a very, very serious threat to America as we know it. Now, we'll talk about this a lot in the future because it is so important. Okay, we're going to take a short break now, but don't go away because in the next section, I want to talk to you about America, the way it used to be, what some of the principles were that are now being discarded and what that is doing to our nation, what is happening to America. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people... AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, when I was growing up, and before that even, long before that, we all had heroes. And just like now, except our heroes weren't the multi-million dollar athletes who had little more to recommend them than their athletic prowess and their ability to command multi-million dollar salaries and then sign on to lucrative contracts with designer brands like Nike and Under Armour and Adidas and many others. It wasn't like that back then. Our heroes were the men and, and women that we learned about in school. We learned about George Washington, for example, and we all heard the story <laughs> more than once of how he said to his father, I cannot tell a lie, I cut down the cherry tree. Or about Abraham Lincoln, who walked many miles to return a book that he had borrowed because he had no other means of transportation. And these stories, they were parables, probably, They probably never really happened, but they taught us a lesson, and that was part of what we learned in school, the lesson relating to integrity and honesty and reliability. We learned that when we were out in the world with other people, they could count on us. And we also learned about our country and what a great country it was. We also had sports heroes, by the way. They weren't multi-million dollar winners, but they were men who overcame a lot. One of my heroes and the heroes in my family was Jackie Robinson. My father grew up in the Flatbush area of Brooklyn, and that was right near Ebbets Field, where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. That was the stadium that the Brooklyn Dodgers called home. 
And so there was no other team to root for in our family except the Brooklyn Dodgers. And Jackie Robinson was the hero of the Dodgers because he broke the racial barrier in National League baseball. He was the first black man to join a national team and play in the game of baseball. He was famous for his courage that allowed him to go through all of the harassment that he took when he joined professional baseball. He was also famous for his ability to steal bases. So these were our heroes. And the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles in 1957, and I doubt that they're teaching about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln in schools today the way they did when I was a kid, when we learned the lessons that they taught us through these historical figures. The reason I'm mentioning all this is because we are facing a major crisis in this country, and you've heard me talk about this before, and you will no doubt hear me talk about it again. But my point is this. The lessons that I learned when I was a kid don't seem to apply anymore. We are no longer teaching our kids about good sportsmanship or about integrity or loyalty. Instead, our schools are teaching our kids that if they show up, they get a prize. That they're entitled to things that we had to work for. And that it's okay to go around with your hand out expecting people to give you things because you're worth it somehow in spite of the fact that you haven't earned it. But that's what our kids are learning and we're seeing it now in universities where students are demanding things that they haven't worked for, that they haven't earned, and that they're not entitled to. Truly. They're not entitled to it because of the color of their skin, and they're not entitled to it because of their faith, and they're not entitled to it because they are in a category that the progressives deem worthy of entitlement. So what I want to talk about today, right now, right here, are the things that we have lost in America or that we are in danger of losing permanently in America. I want to underscore how important these things are if America is going to remain a free and democratic society in which everybody has a chance to succeed and everybody has the opportunity to reach his or her highest level of achievement. So let me start with some of the concepts that are really ingrained in our Constitution by our founding fathers. One of the first things that I learned at home from my parents was that in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty. I later learned that this was a concept that we got from Europe and that was formally entered into American law in a Supreme Court case way back in 1894. It was a case called Coffin versus the United States. And it said, quote, the law presumes that persons charged with crime are innocent until they are proven by competent evidence to be guilty, unquote. And it was in this same case, by the way, that the related concept of reasonable doubt also entered into the body of U.S. law. But in today's America as we saw in, for example, the Kavanaugh hearings, 
The opinion of the Democrats is that you are guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. And the word of the accuser trumps any other legal imperative in spite of its history in American law. That is a pretty dangerous situation. And we're seeing it now in the Schiff investigation. This is the impeachment investigation that is targeting the President of the United States, who is deemed guilty by Adam Schiff, who has said over and over again that the President is guilty of crimes, and he has said also, Adam Schiff, that he has proof, although he has never shown any. And now Adam Schiff is running these hearings in closed session, in secret, and we don't know what's going on behind closed doors when he and other members of his intelligence committee are questioning witnesses. So innocent until proven guilty, as far as the Democrats are concerned, seems to have fallen by the wayside. It's not relevant now, not for them, because they are perfectly willing to assign guilt to someone, even the president, long before there is any proof of guilt. Let's take something else. How about a right to face accusers? The right of the accused to face his accusers. That is not only a concept that has been a principle of custom in this country, it is enshrined in our Constitution, in the Sixth Amendment of the Bill of Rights. The American tradition of law is based on the original concepts that were embodied in our Constitution. And the Sixth Amendment in the Bill of Rights has something called the Confrontation Clause. And that provides, and I quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him, unquote. But look what's happening in the attacks on Donald Trump. We have a situation where the whistleblower, so-called, is protected. He's not been identified. And therefore, the president, whom he is accusing, does not have the opportunity to hear the accusations from him and to be able to respond. He doesn't have that opportunity because the Democrats are protecting the so-called whistleblower. Now, we don't know who the whistleblower is so far, and the reason is that Adam Schiff, among others, is protecting him or her. But this is a bad situation because in this particular case, there was a person inside the White House who essentially spied on the president, reported to the person, either directly or indirectly, to the person who we call the whistleblower. And the whistleblower, with secondhand knowledge, reported directly to Adam Schiff and his staff, and then Adam Schiff and his intelligence committee accused the president on the basis of this information. This flies directly in the face of the Sixth Amendment. Because as long as the whistleblower is protected and, it, and the president is not allowed to face him and hear his accusations to his face, the Sixth Amendment of our Constitution is being ignored, or worse, by a member of Congress 
who took an oath to uphold the Constitution. So you have the legislative part of our government at odds with the judicial branch of our government, i.e. the Supreme Court, and the executive branch, the president. This is a very dangerous situation. All right, let's go to something else. How about this? The CIA was founded to be our spy operation overseas, abroad. They were not allowed to operate in the United States, and they certainly were not permitted to spy on Americans. But in today's America, as it is perceived by the Democrats, the CIA not only spies on Americans, but then lies about it. So we have things like the Steele dossier that was full of lies about the man who became president, about Donald Trump, an American. And they were all lies. There was nothing truthful about anything in the dossier, except maybe they got his name right. In the past, the FBI needed verified evidence in order to get a secret FISA warrant. But in today's America, where the Democrats seem to be running the show, you can use any information, unverified, bought and paid for by partisan organizations like the DNC and the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. The FBI, under James Comey, was very willing to use information from foreign sources, even though the information was false and they knew it, and they could not verify it, and were made up, as I said, of lies. Completely made up of lies. It used to be in this country that, that Americans believed that the truth was rock solid, and that if your defense was based on truth, you would be exonerated. But in today's America, under the Democrats, the truth doesn't mean anything at all. They are perfectly willing to lie, as Adam Schiff has shown us. As James Comey and all the other people who were operating at the top of our government agencies have shown us. That the truth is cheap. It doesn't mean anything. And it's easy and acceptable to be corrupted without consequence. Okay, here's another thing. It used to be that our press, our fourth estate, was objective and reliable. And its job was to keep Americans informed and maintain a check on politicians. And it did something else. It separated fact from opinion. And that was important. And it worked for a very long time. It exposed corruption and it brought the news to Americans in a way that they could understand what was going on, and for the most part, they could trust what they were reading. And when it came time for elections, they could vote accordingly. But today, it has aligned itself with the political left, which makes it biased and absolutely unobjective. In short, it cannot be trusted. The press is so biased that it publishes anything that will sell papers and support the Democrat agenda. And more and more 
a socialist agenda. It publishes unverified leaks as facts and does not provide any checks and balances on the political establishment in Washington and at home. And here's another one. It used to be that Congress could impeach and threaten to imprison an American president on valid charges. But today, it seems as though they can impeach and threaten to imprison an American president on any charges, particularly fraudulent ones. The Democrats in America today have done everything they can to make up the charges, to make up the crimes that they want the president to be indicted on. The Soviet Union used to say, you give us the man, we'll give you the crime. And that's what the Democrats are doing today. If one investigation doesn't succeed in finding a crime that the president has committed, they will move on to the next investigation. That is a classic example of a witch hunt. They seem to be casting around for anything, anything that will catch the president in an illegal act. And so far they have been completely unsuccessful. Because this isn't about crime. This isn't about the president being a criminal. This is about hate. This is about resentment. This is about the Democrats being unwilling and unable to accept their loss in 2016. And in this rage that they are feeling, they will do anything to catch the president and bring him down. So when we're talking about the America that I grew up in, it wasn't perfect, but it was legitimate. We were proud to be Americans. We were proud of America. America was, in fact, creating a light for the rest of the world. But now we are in a different situation. The lying that is coming out of the Democrat camp in Washington, in Congress, is so reprehensible that it's not an exaggeration to say that the Democrats in Congress, most of them, need to be replaced by people who are honest and who love this country and who have the welfare of this country at the core of their mission. I would like very much to go back to an America where the people love the country, all the people, or most of them, love this country and want to see this country succeed. And when this country is succeeding, they acknowledge it, they applaud it, and they do what they can to support whatever is making this country better. Of course, we will always disagree with each other on various parts of policy or the issues of the day. We're all different, and we have our opinions, and they don't always agree. In fact, they frequently don't agree with those of our neighbors. But we need to be civil, and we need to disagree and still be friends and talk about our disagreements without hating each other for the fact that we disagree and somehow find the commonalities that bring us together, not the differences that drive us apart. And when that happens, we will have a better country. And somehow, we need to turn this around. Okay, I'm going to take another break, and then I will be back with another You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up and some more stories. See you in a minute. 
Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called the Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God given right to free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. And now, my friends, we have reached the point in the show called... You just can't make this stuff up. So what's the topic today? Oh my gosh. We've talked about California before. All the problems they have, the debt, the homeless. My gosh, they have so much. The the huge number of illegal immigrants. California wants to be a sanctuary state. So they give sanctuary to illegal immigrants, some of whom are criminals, who are released from jail into the general population rather than being turned over to ICE to be returned to their home countries where they belong. California has so many problems. Anyway, the name of this story is Kill It and Grill It. So what's it all about? Well, I don't know about you, but I couldn't make this one up if I tried. Here's the story. California's governor, Gavin Newsom, just signed on to Senate Bill 395. And this bill authorizes the creation of a pilot program in California. Now, 
this isn't yet law, and it won't be until it is passed. It's just a bill that is being proposed. But under this bill, the state will designate no later than January 1st, 2022, up to three regions in the state that have the highest wildlife vehicle collisions. You know what I'm talking about. You're driving along in a wooded area, and all of a sudden, a deer runs across the road, and bam, you hit him. Instant roadkill. According to this bill, the driver can take it home and eat it. That already sounds disgusting to me, but it is estimated that more than 20,000 deer alone are hit by cars or trucks on California roads. Well, I have to admit it, that's a lot of venison. Now, the bill covers specific kinds of animals. It's not just deer. If you run over a skunk, you can't take it home and eat it. But if you hit a deer or an elk or an antelope or even a wild pig, if you hit it and you kill it, this has to be road kill, remember. You can scrape it off the road and throw it in the back of your car and take it home and cook it for dinner. And drivers who hit and kill an animal that falls into one of these four categories can apply retroactively for a wildlife salvage permit for free within 24 hours of the collision. Now, if you're not a driver, but you come across roadkill, you can also salvage the dead animal. Yuck! When was the last time you wanted to eat roadkill? And even if this makes sense to you, doesn't California have other priorities that maybe should take precedence? How about the 130,000 homeless people in the state, many of them vets, who live on the sidewalks of California's biggest and once most beautiful cities? California has spent millions of dollars on the problem, but they've only succeeded in making it worse. Do you think maybe they aren't addressing the core issues when they hose down the sidewalks and then let the homeless move back in? Or how about the pollution in California, the arsenic that EPA says is in the water, and the pathogens and other contaminants that they are finding from untreated human waste? Or how about the raw sewage that's being pumped into San Francisco Bay? because their system mixes rainwater runoff with raw sewage and all of it runs into the bay. Or how about the $352 billion state debt that continues to grow even while the state continues to spend nearly all of its in-state revenues on things like giving the illegal immigrants free benefits for example. To be sure, California is a mess, and there's not much hope for it getting better. You'd need to completely change the government. Kill it and grill it is just one small example of how Gavin Newsom has gotten his priorities all mixed up, and the state of California is suffering for it, but they'll have plenty of venison to eat. You just can't make this stuff up. And you know, there's one more story about California that I just want to share with you. Governor Newsom signed 
a slew of new gun bills into law in October. And he drew criticism, not only from the NRA, which we expected, of course, but from the American Civil Liberties Union. Now that's really rare. Usually they go with the progressive liberal point of view. But maybe that just shows how off the rails California has become. You know, it's ironic because the California legislature, led, of course, by Democrats, will go to great lengths to protect the rights of illegal immigrants. But at the same time, while they're protecting the rights of illegal immigrants, they're doing nothing to protect the constitutionally protected rights of the American citizens who live in California. Now, for example, in one of the new laws, California has said that the purchase of a single long gun rifle each month is the maximum that any Californian will be able to carry out. One long gun a month. And maybe that seems like a lot. That's 12 long guns a year. But in a free society, when does the government get to step in and tell you what you can buy and what you cannot buy and how many of them you can buy? Well, one thing about this new law is that it will expand the state's red flag laws and will allow, wait for this, co-workers, employers, and even teachers to request a firearms restraining order against another private citizen. Now, come on, doesn't this sound like the old Soviet Union, where children informed on their parents and neighbors informed on each other and working colleagues were required to inform on their fellow workers? Any behavior or language that seemed to threaten the communist ideology? Is California turning into the Soviet Union where people inform on each other? California is taking abuse of power to a whole new level. They are shredding our Constitution, and it's very scary. Even the ACLU said that the new law poses a significant threat to civil liberties because a gun owner in this scenario doesn't even have a chance to dispute the request for a restraining order because the orders can be sought before he even knows about it. There is no due process here. It's lost because it allows people with no real training or understanding in making the appropriate assessment and putting them in charge of determining who should or should not be able to have a gun. So California has done it again and is moving into a situation where civil rights are being ignored when California's citizens have fewer rights than those of illegal immigrants. That is more than a sad story. This has all the makings of a disaster for democracy in California. Now, let's move to a different part of the world entirely. Syria is still in the news. And the big question on this side of the world is this. Turkey's invasion of Syria and Trump's withdrawal of American troops from Syria. Was Trump right or wrong? Well, it's not that simple. What do you do 
if you are president of the United States and you are fighting alongside of a group of people, the Kurds in this case, whom you have been supporting in an effort to wipe out ISIS in northern Syria. And another ally, this time Turkey, who, like you, is a member of NATO, but considers the Kurds terrorists and doesn't want them on their border, threatens to attack them, whether or not your troops are in the way. What do you do? Do you fight against your NATO ally, the Turks, in order to support the Kurds? Do you abandon the Kurds, who have been fighting ISIS at your side for three years? I have a colleague, a military man, who says that America can't keep an indefinite presence in the middle of the Syrian war, regardless of the reason. It isn't feasible, he says, and it doesn't make any sense militarily. He also points out that since Turkey and the U.S. are both members of NATO, we can't fight them without breaking our own agreements with our other NATO allies. So, you might ask, but what about ISIS? Don't we need to be there to prevent the work of our troops over the last three years from being destroyed? And what about our allies, the Kurds, whom the Turks consider to be terrorists, but we consider to be allies? What about them? Well, like I said, it's complicated. The latest word out of the region is that Kurdish fighters watching the Americans leave the region pelted them with potatoes and tomatoes. And word was that they had joined the Russians to fight the Turks. At the end of the day, it seems that nobody is happy with the outcome of this confrontation. The United States is probably the best off because we are removed from it, at least for the moment. Ken Timmerman wrote a, a very interesting article in the New York Post. In this article, he said, President Trump did not sell out the Kurds. The ceasefire agreement reached on Thursday, while not perfect, no ceasefire ever is, it's being closely monitored by the U.S. with the promise of punishing sanctions to Turkey should they violate it, unquote. Well, of course, we know that they did violate it. And now that the period of so-called ceasefire is over, we have yet to see what's going to happen next. There are several countries involved in this tiny piece of land. Turkey, of course, the Kurds, the Syrians, the Russians, the Americans, and also, let's not forget, the Iranians, who were amassing their troops on the Iraqi-Syrian border until they were met on the other side of the border by American troops. As I say, it's very complicated, and anybody who wants to see a simple solution there is going to be disappointed. And just to show you how volatile this region really is, another story came out on Tuesday evening that changed the whole situation. On Tuesday night, the United States told Turkey that the withdrawal of Kurdish fighters from what Turkey called the safe zone, that 20-mile zone along the Turkish-Syrian border, Washington said that the Kurds had withdrawn completely from 
the area. In response, the Turkish Defense Ministry said in a statement that was quoted by Reuters that Turkey no longer had demands on the region and therefore the truce would continue. So here's the progression. On Friday, Erdogan warned that his country would restart the attacks against the Kurdish forces in Syria if, they, if the Kurds did not withdraw from the safe zone. And he gave them until Tuesday, which was yesterday, to complete their withdrawal. And he warned, in fact, on Saturday, he warned that if there was no solution to this crisis that Turkey frankly created, but never mind, he said Turkey will find the solution for itself, and he threatened to smash the heads of the Kurdish terrorists. Wow. So it looks like there's been a resolution to this crisis, and I hope there has been. The truce was brokered, by the way, by Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Pompeo when they visited Ankara last week. So we'll see if this holds, but it seems to be hopeful. So we just have to wait and see what's going to happen next. That's, I say that a lot on this show because the world is changing very rapidly. And we cannot know today what is likely to happen tomorrow. It's just that complicated. Now there's one more story as a follow-up to what we've talked about on earlier programs. And that is that in Israel, the election results are still at a stalemate. If you remember, when Israel held its election last spring, there was no clear winner. The current prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, tried to put together a coalition government and failed. So they held a second election. And in that election, the results were even closer. As a result, Netanyahu was tasked to try to put together a new government. But the latest news from Israel is that Netanyahu has failed, and the task of forming a new government now goes to the runner-up, Benny Gantz, who is on the opposite side of the political spectrum from Netanyahu. Now, the reason for this, the reason that Netanyahu could not put together a coalition government, and the reason that Benny Gantz will probably also be unable to put together a coalition government is because neither party leader was willing to compromise enough to build the coalition. And that's a shame because Israel is desperately in need of a solid government at a time when its national security is threatened from all sides, from Hamas in Gaza, from Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon, and from Iran and its nuclear weapons. So Israel is in the crosshairs, and it remains to be seen what will happen if Israel cannot put together a government. This is a very serious problem, and it has never happened before in Israel. Israel is facing a series of domestic problems which are very similar to our own here in America. There is a very sharply divided right and left, and they are becoming more and more antagonistic to each other. And that is a problem in Israel, 
it was always true that no matter how we disagreed politically, we could always sit down and have a cup of coffee together and share conversation as friends. We're seeing that less and less. And in this case, the division has caused a failure in the electoral process. This has never happened in the 71-year history of the Jewish state. Well, that's all the time we have today. We've covered a, a bunch of stories. I always enjoy spending time with you. I'm glad you came to spend time with me. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.